following program contains language and subject matter that is adult in nature. Discretion is advised. Okay, there we go. This is Ugly Phil. What are you waiting for? Do it! Triple M. In the country right now, Iron Maiden. In fact, I got a phone call on Saturday saying, do you want to come and have a quick chat with Nico McBrain from Iron Maiden? I said, yeah, why the hell not? So we went up to an amazing palatial hotel room to have a chat about the shows. They're playing in Melbourne tonight at the Rod Labour Arena, and I wanted to know how the shows were going. The shows have been going great, absolutely phenomenal. The audiences have been wild and, and really 100% plus into it. Bruce has been on fire every night. He's he's my hero. We've got the set. We feel comfortable with it. Although, having said that, in, uh, in Auckland the other night, we were playing the first song, uh, Eternity Shall Fail. I had actually left one of the choruses off at the end of the song. Okay. So there's me jamming along, thinking, oh, yeah, I know this song now, you know, and I actually did one one short, so instead of doing four around the chorus at the end, I did three. But the greatest thing about it was everybody stopped with me, and so anyone in the audience would probably look at each other and go, there was another one, wasn't there? No, 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 no. No, they all stopped at the same time. Bit of an exaggerated break before the spoken word part comes in. We have fun. We're a live band. That's what it's all about. I mean, we're not robots, for crying out loud. You well, it's, know? You know, it's a very physical show, too. I've noticed a lot. I mean, you don't need to go to the gym before or after. No, there is that. You know, we are all keeping ourselves focused on... Uh, this is a, a bit of a brutal tour. You know, look, here we are. You know, I'm playing in probably the world's greatest heavy metal band in, in the world right now. Playing this wonderful tour and start whinging and whining about the schedule of it, but it is very difficult. This is the, f- the second of two days off which we've had since we started this tour, so it's all been pretty much flying on, on the non-show days, etc. So to try and catch up on more so getting over the jet lag. I mean, I don't even know what freaking day it is, to be honest with you. <laughs> At some station, I want a good evening, let's go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're right. It's like that. I, I don't know how Bruce manages it, but um, he, he, it's great. And thank you so much for your time. And uh, God bless everyone out there. And uh, stay safe and well. So tonight on The Rubber Room, I thought we'd talk about, well, we're going to kind of get all upmarket and food-like. Maybe we'll rename ourselves Master Beat Chef or something. Because I've got a couple of stories. One being, uh, this is Charles, who's on the Skype from Colombia, of all places. He's a professor of food. They've done research that can match the music that you listen to with the food that you eat. How does the research work? Kind of research looking at how what we hear can affect what we taste, what we expect to taste, and how much we enjoy the experience. Okay, well, let's go through some different types of food and find out what it's paired with. In terms of Italian food, what would you recommend? So something like Nessendorma, Pavarotti was a good match, or right. uh, Vivaldi's Four Seasons. One of the most interesting things that came out of the, uh, the study was, in fact, for Indian food, about 5% spicier when they were listening to uh, rock music. It's good for the tongue in more ways than one. <laughs> Could sell an album <laughs> on that. <laughs> Found this really interesting, too, that Jan's music, Frank Sinatra or Nina Simone, good with sushi. That's right. Maybe they're in contrast to kind of the Italian kind of takeaways. It's a little bit harder to think about what sort of music you normally listen to that would kind of ethnically match sushi. But across all the five different kinds of takeaway food, those were the tracks that, that came out best for sushi. It's a shame that Sinatra actually goes with uncooked food because if it went with a decent fry up, I could coin the punchline, come fry with me, but it's wasted now. <laughs>
In fact, your research has been so well received that Heston Blumenthal wants to use some of your advice in his award-winning Fat Duck restaurant. Does that mean that he'll have personal Walkmans or something like that that are conducive to the meal that he's serving? Or is he just going to go and you know use a bit of potluck? So since about 2007, they have been serving one of the signature dish on the menu, the, the sound of the seafood dish that would come to the table. But at the same time, the waiter brings to your table a conch shell out of which dribble some earbuds from an iPod. Uh, and when you put those earbuds in, you will hear the sounds of the sea. Um, we have done the research with Heston uh, to demonstrate that people will rate seafood as tasty better uh, when they hear the sounds of the sea than if we play modern jazz or farmyard chicken sounds or restaurant cutlery sounds or something else. And the other thing I found that was really interesting as well is the matching of drinks with wine, for example, with music. A good Cabernet Sauvignon paired with One Get Fooled Again by The Who will bring out the depth of the Cab Sav. Uh, that's right. Um, so it's kind of an exploding area of research at the moment. Both what kind of music seems to go well with different kinds of wine, whites or reds or different grape varieties. But beyond that, whether if you find the right kind of matching music, can you bring something out in the wine on the music that we listen to can easily be transferred to what we say about what we think we're tasting at the same time. The thing that satisfies me the most as well, hip-hop and R&B have no effect on the enjoyment of different tastes. Yeah, 700 people who, who took part in the study, so um, that view is shared by many. Second of two food-related stories, and I'm quite excited about this because in California, they're about to add cannabis to the herb and spice rack because the state is preparing for the possible legislation of recreational marijuana in November. And the chef Chris Sayer is doing cannabis-infused menus for $500 a head. Don't know if you get the head with it. Uh, or the pop-up banquets around LA for $20 to $200 per people. Uh, diners must show their medical marijuana card, though. And the chef says that incorporating cannabis into his recipes creates an entirely new consciousness for diners. And that would be because you're getting stoned. He says, to me, this is a cerebral experience. You're eating with a different perception with each different bite. That would be because you're getting stoned. And he says, you literally change the brain chemistry and you view the food differently than you did five or ten minutes ago because you are getting stoned. Which brings me to this. And I'm very excited too. Oh, come on. There's going to be hundreds of punchlines in this one. Medical marijuana on the menu. I'll have the pot noodle. <laughs> medical menu, the medical marijuana. Uh, I'll have seaweed. Thank you. I know there's hundreds of them. What have you got? Let's get to the phone. So, Dave, in California, you can get a marijuana menu. How are you? I should have known you'd ring through. Oh, stop it. <laughs> marijuana menu. What's the punchline? Uh, can I have cheese balls for dessert, please? You should have cheese balls just for suggesting that. <laughs> I think I do, mate. I don't know. I'll have to go and have a look. Glenn? Uh, it's got to be the old 30-cent cone. For dessert or the entree? Ah, How are you, James? Yeah, good, Phil. How are you? What do you got? Medical marijuana menus. The one time you want to have all your greens. <laughs> That's very good. Thanks, Phil. Hello, Daryl. Hey, young. Marijuana menu. Can I have it done on the stone grill? That's also very good. No worries. Hello, Scott. Phil, how you doing, Phil? I can't wait to hear it. Uh, I'll have the stone baked pizza, please. Thanks. And do you know what you're going to have to drink with it? I'll have a Bud Light. There it is, the Bud. i got to tell you, Frank, there's been some fantastic punchlines here. Big pot pie. <laughs> <laughs> Brings a new meaning to Happy Meal, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. Stacey, you should know better. Why? <laughs> you were a girl and this is a boy's world. <laughs> I would probably order the baked stonefish. Oh. Double heavy. <laughs> Matthew, one more. What's the punchline? Lucky Phil's diner. I'd like to order a uh, chicken hatch cookie. <laughs> what came first? No, we don't have time. There it is. Hi there, this is Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden. You're listening to Ugly Phil. He's in the rubber room. So are you, and you're on Triple M. So Lee Hopkinson is here. She's spent 20 years as a stripper. She's written a book called Two Decades Naked. That's all about the career. Nice to have you here. How'd you get started in this biz? It was a combination. I was living in Christchurch in New Zealand and uh, studying an arts degree at university and feeling a bit unchallenged. I had recently been fired from my waitressing job and I had a background in dance and theatre. And uh, one of the girls that I'd performed with in a school production had been lingerie dancing in her lunch hour. And she had come back and told us some pretty exciting tales of what that involved. You go to some strip clubs and you see dancers and they look like they're having a great time and, you know, they love all their customers. But sometimes you must be thinking, I wish I was at home watching TV. It's a job like any other in that sense, that there were days when I really loved the work and there were other days when it was the last thing I felt like doing. That's sort of part of the reason why I wrote the book and that I wanted to address some of the stigma that strippers and sex workers face and we are certainly not the sum of our labour, we are are that and we are much more as well. There's this impression that we are morally bankrupt, that we don't have any self-respect and that we can't get another job and none of those things are true. Doctors, people who are studying PhDs and psychologists, so for a lot of women it is definitely a choice and um, it can be an incredibly liberating and rewarding, not to mention quite wacky. Uh, way to pass the time. I lived with strippers on the Gold Coast. I had three female strippers who I shared my house with. And the most fun thing for them to do was to design the outfits. In fact, they were always looking for bits of cloth and things that they could sew together. Well, I was listening to your show last week and I heard you mention that. Yeah. And certainly I loved that creative aspect of the work, that I could create my own costumes and that I had a valid reason for a lot of my artistic pursuits. So that combined with being able to dance, meeting so many different people from all walks of life. Pretty rewarding experience. Although I imagine you must have some men that forget that they're paying to see you and I'm sure you've had more than a few that have blurred the lines. Yeah, and I go into that in my book. I had two regulars in particular and a regular is a customer who will come in on a regular basis to see a dancer. One of them, weatherman John, he knew what those lines were and what those boundaries were and he knew that any given Friday, as he used to say, could be his last. In fact, his wife used to drop him off on her way to classical concerts. So there was never any misunderstanding as to what that looked like but I had another customer who I initially referred to as Thursday Man he was very keen for me to move in with him and his mother in the suburbs and and he was a wonderful man and I'm very grateful for his patronage but it didn't matter how many times I told him it was my job he obviously hoped that one day it would be something more. And how many guys promised to take you away from this life? There were a lot of men who wanted to rescue me (laughs) and that's part of I think uh, the misconception that, that we're victims and that we're not there by choice and that that we do need looking after and you know I've worked with some really fiercely strong independent women and yeah they make up their own minds and their own values and um, they're not in need of rescuing. Lee Hopkinson is here she's been dancing in exclusive men's clubs for 20 years she decided to write a book and go off and do other stuff thanks so much for coming in though when you were dancing when you were out there on the pole did 
any man ever try and buy your underwear? Have you read my book? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, there are on occasion. Uh, you might appreciate this having lived with three strippers, that those costumes that we wear take a lot of effort to oh, yeah. make. Oh, and yeah, there's no part with that. <laughs> there's no putting with those. <laughs> what about the place that wouldn't let you wear leopard skin or leopard colour and you had to have everything that was all matching in one colour? I didn't realise it was that strict. Yeah, initially when I started at the Men's Gallery, they had quite a strict dress code, so uh, we weren't allowed to wear see-through, we weren't allowed to wear leopard print, and I think it, you know, it differs from club to club. When I danced in New Zealand, we could wear pretty much whatever we liked, so um, yeah, every club has different rules and different standards. And I guess the rules as well when it comes to what you can do in the clubs change, and have changed a lot, especially over the last few years, because it seems to be, in some cases, a bit of open slather there. You'll pardon the pun on that. It has definitely changed, yeah. I sound like a dinosaur when I say it's not what it was back when I started. Um, but certainly, you know, I started in Christchurch and I was performing stage shows for a wage and there was a lot of segregation between me and the patrons. Over the years, those boundaries have shifted um, with table dancing, obviously, uh, and performing private dances. You're in far greater proximity to the customers. And it's funny because the girls that I lived with were almost psychologists insofar as they would learn what it was that the customer wanted and the different role they had to play. I've got to be their mum or okay I've got to be the boss in this situation. Yeah and that's where stripping does become a performance as much as it is anything else and certainly I like to think of it as a combination of sport, theatre and counselling. Um, not necessarily in that order. Not in that order, no. <laughs> and, and what about if you've got someone that you're not attracted to? It often wasn't about whether or not I was attracted to a customer. I was there to do a job and I was there to do that job to the best of my ability. So I would often try and find a point of common connection, something that we had in common, make them feel, feel comfortable and at ease because often men who do come into strip clubs do feel a little bit awkward. It can be intimidating. It's a sad fact that a lot of men who do come into strip clubs feel like they're not worthy of being noticed by no. a good-looking women. So. It's incredible how similar your job and my job are, or the job that you used to do. Because oftentimes I'm playing a song and I've got to come off the back of it and be really excited, and I'm just faking it, to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's hard to fake it in the middle of the night sometimes when your body just wants to... Story of my life. <laughs> how much money can you make? It really depends on, on the venue. It depends on how hard you work, and it depends on Luck. I suppose you've had jewellery offers and things like that. It was funny. I used to wonder why I didn't get the gifts. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't think I was very good at playing the game like that. Right. What about tips? What was the best tip you ever got? In terms of money or advice? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, <forget laughs> advice from drunk men in clubs. I wouldn't be listening to them. <laughs> um, Speaking from experience. <laughs> I did once get paid $200 by a man to sit and talk politics, so that was really nice. Did you have to take his opinion or did he want an argument? Um, I did have to take his opinion, but he was looking for an argument, yeah, yeah, a discussion. Thank you so much for coming into the Rubber Room. Two Decades Naked is the name of the book. Lee Hopkinson, did you have a nickname, by the way? Yeah, I started with Holly and I finished with Jasmine. It's always good if you can name yourself after something that grows or champagne. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Well, thanks for having me on the show. You're listening to the Rubber Room podcast. You can listen to us weeknights, 7 to 10 p.m. on Triple M. Can you do the honours, please, Mr. Inappropriate? Blink 182 once had an album called Enema of the State. Did I ever tell you about the time I was blocked up for more than four days and I probably needed a plumber? More than I needed a doctor. Just to introduce the band. I gotta tell you, it was like when you unkink a hosepipe. 
It was violent, man. On the phone, it's Mark Hoppus from Blink 182. Hi. Good to talk to you. Great to have Blink-182 back on the radio as well. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Were you at a stage where you thought, you know, I may have to wrap up this band, or did that ever even enter your mind? didn't really enter my mind when I found out that Tom was out, and I was more like, okay, well, this feels familiar. (laughs) (laughs) But we had shows booked, and Travis and I didn't want to cancel the shows because people had already bought tickets for it. Travis and I talked on the phone, and we were like, well, what about Matt Skiba? And it was really the only person who we thought would fit. And we met up with Matt, and we asked him to fill in on the shows, and he very graciously did, and he's been a friend of ours forever. And then the shows went so well, and the fan reception was so great that we were like, well, this feels really good. What if we got in the studio? And kind of that's, it all started from there. Obviously, having a new uh, guitarist in the band is a different thing, and I understand that people would be like wondering what it was going to sound like, wondering how it was all going to fit. And, and I think that when people saw Matt play, everyone was totally behind him, and everyone had a blast at the shows, and it totally made sense. And I think that, you know, people were wondering what the record was going to sound like. And now that Board of Death is out, people are like, oh, yeah, OK, this totally makes sense. I know there's been a lot of talk about the work that you did with John Feldman in the studio as well. He really did become almost the fourth member of this group, didn't he? Yeah, John's incredible. He stepped in and really took the reins and pointed us in a direction. He kept focusing us back on what is Blink-182 all about? What is the foundation of Blink-182? And he really uh, got us back to our roots and is a great producer and has become a great friend. So you had all of these songs that you then scrapped. So the new versions of the songs, of which I believe you had something like 30 in the bag anyway, uh, how different are they to the previous incarnations? Uh, Well, the songs that we started writing beforehand, uh, we wrote for probably four or five months before we stepped into the studio with John, and and we liked all the songs. They were really strong songs. And when we started with John, the thought was, well, maybe we'll go in and he can listen to the songs we've done and we can take a bunch of those and kind of bring them to life and maybe write a song or two with John. And we got in the studio with him and just started writing. By the end of the day, we'd have like two new songs and we just started doing that. And by the end, we had almost 30 new songs. They were way better than what we've been writing on our own. Obviously, we went with those songs. They're great. On this record, I really think it takes Blink back to our roots. I think that there are songs in this album that sound like they could have been on Enema of the State. There's songs like they could have been on Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. And then there's songs that sound like nothing that we've ever done before. It's kind of a throwback and a step forward at the same time. Rubber Room at Triple M. We've got Mark Hoppus on the phone from Blink-182. Did you guys feel that you fit into that 90s punk scene at all? No, I never felt like Blink fit in with like the punk movement. I always felt like Blink were outliers. I thought that people always took us as a joke band or a throwaway band. And people who listen to Blink always knew that we were way more than that from an outsider's casual perspective. I mean, we're just so stupid when we walk up on stage and we're silly in our videos. And obviously we write uh, silly things from time to time. But uh, I always felt like we were outliers. And the cool thing now is that as we kind of go into this next generation of music, people are coming up that grew up on Blink-182, and there's all these other bands that are like, oh, yeah, I listened to Blink-182 when I was growing up. Bands that I never would have thought listened to Blink-182. So, I don't know, it's kind of come full circle, and it's a good feeling. Would you have liked Blink to have been part of the 70s punk period, or was that all a bit too serious? Yeah, that was all too serious. You know, growing up in Southern California, I would kind of hear punk rock, and, I, and, and most of it was, like, from the East Coast of the United States. It was very political, and it was very angry and it was very aggressive and, and it wasn't didn't really speak to me and then I heard the descendants for the first time and they're a band from Los Angeles 
and they're saying about girls and food and yeah. going out with your friends and, and skateboarding and, and things that I totally related to. So 16 tracks on the album. There's been a lot of talk as well about the name of the album, and I quite liked New Direction. For a while it was New Direction, and for a while it was OBGYN Kenobi. Yep. And then we thought about calling it Los Angeles for a while, but as we, as we got through the songwriting process and we three-quarters of the way through the record, we noticed that we were always shouting out things that were very California-specific. And the, the whole thing kind of has this feeling of what California is all about to me, which is endless opportunity, endless optimism, anything can happen, but there's like this weird, dark underside to it. I noticed that Rolling Stone magazine fans have just given the list of the top 10 Blink-182 songs. Did you see the list? I did not. I didn't even know about that. Okay, well, let me tell you. So at 10, it was down, and you can, you know, a couple of these I would have shuffled around, but here's the order. Down, okay. Mutt, Going Away to College... Carousel, All the Small Things, Stockholm Syndrome, and then in the top four, The Rock Show, I Miss You, Adam's Song, and then at number one, Dennis. Oh, cool. Wow, I'm really surprised because there's a lot of songs on there that weren't singles and are deep album cuts from some of our earlier stuff, strong songs, and, I, and I'm stoked that people like things that weren't, weren't necessarily singles. That's cool. Will we see you in Australia? Uh, hopefully, yes. Australia was honestly one of the first places in the world that, outside of Southern California that really embraced Blink early on in like the mid-90s. We were, be, we were able to tour Australia uh, and people would come out to the shows. It's always been really awesome, so I would love to go back anytime. Please feel free to crash on my couch if you ever need to as well. <laughs> okay. Hi, we're Blink-182, and when we're not f***ing your mom, we're listening to Ugly Phil. <laughs> so a group of Nevada sex workers, Nevada, of course, in uh, America, near Vegas. I think Vegas is in Nevada. Anyway, they're calling themselves Hookers for Hillary. They're trying to arouse interest on the for the Democratic presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton, ahead of, of the elections. My name is Taylor Lee. I am a Hillary Clinton supporter, and if she got the nomination, I would be very happy. Her views on foreign policy are excellent. She's for gun control. She's for equal rights as far as marriage. She is wanting to improve health care. I would love for Hillary to get elected in the sense of having the first woman president for the United States would mean so much. So the group includes 490 workers at various legal brothels like the Moonlight Bunny Ranch, the Kit Kat Guest Ranch, the Alien Cat House, that's near Area 51, <laughs> the Love Ranch in Las Vegas. And they've all got together because they want to see what she can do for sex workers. And I like it, and I like the concept, especially as we have an election happening here in Australia as well. I'd like to come up with a couple of possibilities, then open up the phones on 13353. God knows where that's going to take us. Okay, so uh, the Australian version of Hookers for Hillary. What about Tramps for Turnbull? <laughs> what about Prozies for a Plibersick? All right, it's your turn. In the tradition of the sex workers in Nevada being hookers for Hillary and seeing as we have our own election coming up, can we have tramps for Turnbull, prozies for Plibersek, or any of you you've got? One triple three five three, Daddy. Shaggers for Jordan. <laughs> Thank you. So this group of Nevada sex workers calling themselves hookers for Hillary. Can we get a local version for the upcoming election? Xenophobes for Xenophon. It doesn't sound like a sex worker, though. <laughs> Daniel, what have you got? Turning tricks for Turnbull. Andrew, what have you got? Um, I've got beauties for Big Mouth. Josh? Nice and easy for Albanese. <laughs> uh, is this working? <laughs> Testy, testies. <laughs> Ugly Phil. Triple M. The Rubber Room.
Greatest thing about my job is I get to speak to bands that I'm a massive fan of, and this is no exception as well. Band of Horses. In fact, uh, Mr. Inappropriate, please do the introduction if you could. Speaking of Band of Horses, I once had a wee next to a jockey and he said, could you wait a minute please, because that's splashing back in my face. Really? On the phone, it's Ben from Band of Horses. Gonna take a trip to Raider. Gonna take a dip in the lake. Oh, I'm at a crossroads with myself. I don't got no one else. Hi. It's been four years since the last album by my reckoning. Yeah, it's been a little while, hasn't it? What have you been doing? I did a solo side project with Sam Beam from Iron and Wine. And Band of Horses released a acoustic album as well in the interim, so I've been kind of busy, I suppose. I'm going to throw a couple of names at you who've been connected with this album, and you can tell me the connection. Rick Rubin. Yes, he helped kind of guide the process. The material, sometimes I, I just had some questions with if I was going down the right road, and he helped guide me to the promised land. And another hero of mine, and I believe a hero of yours, Jay Masses from Dinosaur Jr. Oh my goodness, yeah, that was a, uh, a late Hail Mary, as we say in the American football terminology. The song was just kicking and screaming all the way to the uh, finalizing of the project, and Jay came in and helped save the day as well. I'd worked with Jay a little bit on his first solo album, Several Shades of Wise, and I'd run into him and we'd played together over the years, so, you know, working with people like that is always a bit of a stunner to you, you know? Infinite Arms, for me, was almost like your Beach Boys Pet Sounds album, and then I found out afterwards that, in fact, there was a connection with the Beach Boys. Didn't you record in the studio that they used? We did, the old in the old uh, Capitol Records building there. Down the street from that, the echo chamber is still there, like Frank Sinatra and all kinds of records back then. Um, you know, they actually have an, an old, huge echo chamber, so we, we kind of just bounced some tracks through there. We didn't, we didn't actually track a whole lot, but, um, you know, just being in the room uh, and witnessing, just kind of looking around and trying to get a sense of the history there is, um, it's always a bit mind-blowing. With the last album, Mirage Rock, I thought it had a sort of almost safe the planet plead to it which I read personally into some of the lyrics was I on the right track with that well I try to sneak little things here and there especially in South Carolina I'll, I'll get run out of the state if I say too many things that are progressive <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm always trying to sneak little hidden meanings of things and, and metaphors to try to mask what I'm actually talking about but um, I would never ruin that for you so if that's the adventure that it took you on then um, I'll agree with you well I imagine because your songs are so interesting but very personal to you as well but the lyrics are quite intricate. I imagine you've had a lot of people that have given you a different interpretation of what the song meant to them. Oh, absolutely, and it's it's my job to make sure I do not ruin that adventure for them. You know what I'm, I don't want to spoil it for them. Like you got in the elevator and what you went to the snack machine and what the hell does that mean? But somehow it's just got a depth and beauty to it that I can't explain to anybody. I guess the ho hum doldrums of my my real life is uh, hopefully interesting to others. Yeah, a sad man walking to go get his dinner from a snack machine. Um, I definitely felt it. Hi, this is Ben from Band of Horses, and you're listening to Ugly Phil in the Rubber Room on Triple M. You're not going to believe this. Apparently, your friends on Facebook aren't really your friends, according to Alexandria, who's on the phone from the Big Smoke, one of Australia's leading opinion sites. 
but they're my friends on Facebook. It must be real. I know. I'm surprised that not everybody likes me as much as I like them. But apparently, this is a study that's come out of the Tel Aviv University that found that only half your friends actually consider you a friend back. So why is this so unrequited? I mean, I seem to have given them a lot of my time and I've liked a lot yeah. of their photos. The way it works is we're not really reading social cues as well as we used to and we're really misunderstanding this whole concept that if somebody likes your photo that they like you, that's not the case. What also is interesting is people are actually less likely to like your stuff on Facebook if they're your genuine friend because they see you in real life anyway. So our whole reality around relationships is really warped in 2016. Because of that, we're just with poor perception of friendship. Okay, now I blame social media for that, but then again, I blame social media for MasterChef and everything. So, And I think what's also funny about all of this is that we're really putting a lot of effort into our Facebook and social media personalities. So we think we're hilarious, well, I do. We put all the stuff out there, and then people don't really care as much as we think they do. And this particular study, it was really about finding that we're bad at judging who our genuine friends are. And we often would find that 95% of participants thought that their relationships were reciprocal, but they weren't. So it's really about the way digital's really impacted the way we collaborate with our peers. I mean, I liked your photo. Why don't you like mine? Hey, listen, I'm going to admit to something, but I know that I'm not Mm. the only one that did this. But I recently, when my birthday came and several people didn't give me a birthday message, I unfriended them. No, I totally get that. Do you know what else I do? I sometimes put a photo of a group of friends and I make sure I'm the one that looks good in that photo. And if they post photos of me and I look terrible, they're dead to me. That's what we've come to, Alex. Yeah, this is who I am now. A friend of mine recently posted a photo with someone that I don't like, so I dropped him mm-hmm. from Facebook. I recently liked a friend's baby photo, and they didn't like my pug photo, so I'm done. I thought this was only me. No, 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 we're all awful people. So how do we solve this? Do we go off Facebook, or do we try and become more Facebook friend compatible? I think it's really about acceptance that people will engage with you for many different reasons online and it's usually not because they like you that much. It's usually, for example, if you're going to post an article about some political analysis and all these people are liking it, they probably just want to do it to seem smart. A lot of people put stuff on Facebook and it doesn't bother me. I mean, stuff I totally don't agree with. You know, a lot of people's Mm. political views are completely different to my political views and you think I'd hold that stronger than I would the fact that I just didn't like, you know, the fact they didn't like me for my birthday photo. Uh, So I let that go. And there's a lot of stuff on there, that a lot of filth that my so-called Facebook friends post that it doesn't Mm. bother me. But as soon as it becomes perceived as personal... Bang, they're gone. I'm kind of loving it, though. Yeah, I can tell. Validation. And what's also funny, and, and this, is, this is actually really interesting, it's kind of, for me, it's about being zen about the fact that you don't even need to see these people offline. Why should I have to engage with people that I haven't seen for 10 or 15 years? I'm going to unfriend you before you unfriend me. Who's got the power <laughs> now? I know. Do you I know what? In it. fact, I'm going to open up the phones right now, one triple three five three, because I'd be curious to see if people are as fickle as we are and what excuse people have used to unfriend friends on Facebook. How have you unfriended people on Facebook? What were the reasons, Matt? Got rid of a friend because she turned gluten-free. <laughs> okay. And that's not fickle at all, man. If you're not down with the gluten, you're not down with me. Yeah, man. Like, I don't want to see that crap. Like, get some gluten in your life. What about people who are vegetarians but hardcore? And they put posts on about, you know, animals and things like that. I get it, yeah. but I don't want to see those photos. No, I don't, I don't want to see your, your vegan cat, man. Like, 
give us some meat. I'm sure that's all it wants. So that's why I'm so, so upset. Stephanie, what's your Facebook confession here? Oh, confession. Well, I'm known as a block and odor because the only thing I've known how to do for eight months is block. Why do so, you block people? Oh, that's the only thing I knew how to do. Oh, I like, I get about 80 friend requests a day. <laughs> yeah, right. And I put all these funnies up and they go, no, shit. Right? So that's all right. That's everything fine with that and everything else. Sure. Why doesn't anybody ever send me a Facebook post with the message, nice tits? What am I doing to miss out on that? You're listening to the Rubber Room Podcast. Find us on facebook.com forward slash MMM Rubber Room. Hey, Mike, thanks for getting on the Facebook page and saying I had nice tits as well. Oh, you care. I didn't think you even ever noticed. Speaking about the Facebook page, we did some stuff finding out what it was you guys were into in the Rubber Room, and I was amazed to find out how many people are into the UFC, which is great because if you go to the Rubber Room Facebook page, we've got the possibility of this Conan McGregor Floyd Mayweather fight, which I know isn't strictly UFC. However, if you follow the UFC, you'd be very interested uh, interested in what's going on with Conor McGregor. So uh, i got Richie on the phone from UFC Fight Week on Fox Sports. If you go to the Rubber Room Facebook page, you can tell us what you think and who would win in the outcome of this happening. Pretty interesting, though, if it ever did, mate. Both these guys, you know, they love to grab headlines. Hopefully there's some truth to this one. I'll love to see it happen. If it, you know, if it does happen in the boxing ring and it's... It's boxing rules. I think it's going to be a pretty tough night for Conor McGregor, but very interesting nonetheless. Well, for a start, he's a total loose cannon, but it's good for the UFC if he's actually doing any kind of promotion. Uh, he would get, I heard, around $7 million for this? A pretty amazing sum. Um, not you know, massive when you compare it to what Mayweather's getting. And you know, Conor was apparently um, you know, slated to get around the $10 million mark for his last fight, which was meant to be at UFC 200 against Nate Diaz, which he has been pulled from. Yeah, you know, the guy is pulling in the biggest money that we've seen in, uh, you know, in, the, in the sport of mixed martial arts and he's getting you know, loads of headlines and, and you know, getting the sport out there, which is, uh, you know, they say any publicity is good publicity. Bit of a catch-22 for Dana because he can't get his fighter to fight, but he's still getting publicity for the UFC. Yeah, exactly, you know. Um, I'm sure Dana would have loved him to fight on the UFC 200 card, but listen, the world is talking about Conor McGregor and the UFC, so there's probably a plus side to that, so I'm sure... Even though he's not fighting, Dana's still, uh, you know, happy with uh, the media that he's getting. I don't think Mayweather would agree to, uh, you know, a mixed martial arts rules fight uh, yep. in the UFC. Um, I imagine they're talking boxing here. You no, know, strictly boxing rules. I think, you know, Mayweather's got hands down. Yeah. Mayweather's um, not going to do anything other than boxing. I heard McGregor's going to have to drop about ten pounds or something as well, doesn't he, to make the weight for this? Connor's a, you know, a relatively big guy compared to Mayweather. He, uh, he has fought at the weight class, which is featherweight, which is sixty-six kilos, and he holds a belt in that weight division but his last fight was up at 77 kilos which is uh, the welterweight division so he moves around a little bit and he's a pretty big guy so he probably walked around that um, 77 to you know 80 kilo range where I think you know, Mayweather's probably 10 kilos lighter than that You're also talking about the main event heavyweight title uh, that's going to be happening this weekend in Brazil. Is that right? Yeah, it's all going down in Brazil. Uh, Fabricio Verdum is defending his heavyweight title against a man called Stipe Miocic, who's, uh, who's been on fire in the heavyweight division lately. That's going to be a cracker, and it's just a jam-packed card in Brazil with pretty much every Brazilian superstar on that card. Oh, listen, somebody said to me the other day, you know how you ring up record shops and you ask for, you know, KFJFC or Jehovah's Witness, and you call up magazine shops and you ask for the Whip Tales of Perth magazine or Sunburn magazine, could you do the same, Phil, with silly names? And the answer, of course, is yes. Hello? Hi, mate, it's Phil here at Triple M. I'm after Barbed Wire. Yeah, I sound Barbed Wire, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah? Yeah, Barbed Wire? Yeah. 
Thanks. You lost it, mate. You want to buy some? You want some erected? Oh, sorry. Yeah, barbed wire. Yeah. Can you help me? Yeah, yeah. I don't, uh, what, what about barbed wire? Yeah, barbed wire. Yeah. I do barbed wire. Oh, right. Yeah, barbed wire. Yeah, if you could. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, no, you, you've lost me, mate. You've lost Oh, sorry. Me. Yeah, I'm looking for barbed wire. Yeah, I sell barbed wire. You, you know barbed wire? Like a roll of barbed wire. Does she work there? I don't know, mate. I think you've got the wrong number. Sorry, I'm looking for barbed wire. <laughs> oh, hello, Timber. Sorry? Timber. Yep? Uh, yes. Well, you're after some timber, are you? Oh, yeah, Timber. Thank you. Yeah, I can help you. Timber? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, Timber. What do you mean, Timber? No, Timber. Yeah, do you want to buy some timber, do you? No, 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 Timber. Oh, Tim Burr. Yeah, is he there at the moment? Hello. Hello, karaoke. Yeah, karaoke, yeah? Yes, thank you. Uh, so, wh- who are you looking for? Karaoke. Yeah, here is the karaoke. Yes, please. Uh, so... Uh, karaoke? Yeah, yeah, yeah. D- I'm just looking for karaoke. Looking for karaoke? Karaoke, yeah, thank you. Uh, no one is called karaoke. No karaoke there? No one is called karaoke here. Yeah, hello, Teresa Green. This is nursery. Nursery, right. Oh, Teresa Green? What do you mean? Teresa Green. I don't know. Yeah, Teresa Green? I don't know what he's saying. Teresa Green. Teresa Green, what, what's that mean? Teresa Green. Teresa Green, yeah. Is she there at the moment? No. You're listening to The Rubber Room Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at the Rubber Room AU. You know, sometimes I watch the news, the TV news, and I can't figure out whether or not I'm watching the news or an ad for something. And why is it all the newsreaders who are called Natasha, and that's all of them, actually have to be called Natasha? But why do they always have to abbreviate and call them Tash? Anyway, if you think the news here in Australia is really bad, how about this? And this is from Conan O'Brien, and this happens all the time. These are independent news stations, different newsrooms, not in the same building, not even in the same town, across the country all reporting a story about how a child, who wasn't well, had a happy birthday party, all introducing the story. By a coincidence? I don't know, but exactly the same way. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. Well, a child's happiness is priceless, right? <laughs> especially on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on their birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A a child's happiness is priceless, especially when it comes to their birthdays. Absolutely. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. Well, a child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A child's smile is priceless, oh, especially a variation. on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. You know, a child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. A child's happiness is priceless, especially on a birthday. Yeah, but how can that possibly happen? I mean, they're different newsrooms in different places, different states, different parts of America, and they've all decided to... How can that happen?
So the uh, world's oldest woman's turned 112, and she said that the reason why she's lived so long is smoking 30 cigarettes a day. She's been puffing 30 cigarettes a day for the last 95 years. She was born in March 1903. She started smoking when she was 17, and she claimed that her daily habit has helped her outlive almost everyone else in her village, including her own children and some of her great-grandchildren as well. She said, I don't really care how old I am, <laughs> but I'm old nonetheless. <laughs> she said with her one lung. She said she smoked as many as 30 cigarettes a day, been doing that for 95 years. She says nothing wrong with the smoking. Uh, she's 80, uh, her eldest son is 85 years of age. She's got great grandkids. Four of them passed away recently of old age. So there you go. But you know, the smoking thing is no big deal for people that would be that old. Back in the day, like in the 40s and 50s, and you know you watch Mad Men and they're all smoking a cigarette, and you see things like people going into offices and they go for a job application, you know, an interview, and they're smoking a cigarette. Could you imagine doing that now? Imagine sitting in a job interview and just pulling out Durry. Yeah, so... Uh, what are the chicks like around this office? Or what about when they used to smoke on planes? And that only stopped in, I think, about the mid-90s. They had some planes where you could sit down the back and they had the two smoking seats. And if you ever found yourself there, it was horrendous too, by the way. But back in the 40s and 50s, they used to have ads on TV where doctors would actually endorse smoke and cigarettes. And incredible as this seems, and I've had to beep out the name of the cigarette company, the Flintstones used to also be sponsored by a cigarette company. I got a better idea. Let's take a instant break. That's it. The one filter cigarette that delivers flavor 20 times a pack. Got that filter blend. Yeah, Fred. Filter blend makes the big taste up front where it counts. Ahead of the pure white filter. Packs rich tobaccos specially selected and specially processed for good flavor in filter smoking. Yeah, tastes good like a cigarette chug. The Flintstone has been brought to you by America's best-selling, best-tasting filter cigarette. It tastes good like a cigarette should. Wow, isn't that incredible? How times have changed. I see uh, Sharon Osbourne's broken her silence about the struggle she's having with Ozzy Osbourne on the talk. She's obviously very afraid that he's going to go out and get himself a bit written off. The last time I spoke to Sharon, in fact, was just before the tour when um, Black Sabbath came out here and I asked her what it was like having a, I guess, a difficult husband like Ozzy. When you meet your soulmate, you know, for better, for worse, and it's like we we just work together. It's just, it's just meant to be. So, it's, you know, even the tough times, you know that it's not going to last forever, the tough times. It's going to get good again, and, and that's it. You know, we're in for the long haul. There you go. Sharon, who's apparently angry at Aussie, but they're not going to get divorced, and that's good news too. I wouldn't want to be in trouble with her. I mean, I don't want to be in trouble with anybody, but I wouldn't want to be in trouble with Sharon Osborne. I wouldn't want to have to come home with my tail between my legs and say I'm sorry. But then again, I wouldn't want to do that to anybody. Remember I told you about smell dating? That's where they're doing the first mail order dating service where they send you a T-shirt. You wear the T-shirt for a few days, you send it back, and while your scent is on the T-shirt, they find you somebody else that's, you know, appropriate for the smell that you have. Dating's gone crazy, man. So I'm interested to call these people shoe dating. They will match the person by the shoes that you buy. They're in Japan. Let's give them a call. Hi, shoe, shoe, shoe. I'm calling you from Australia. Oh, Australia, okay. 
I'm led to believe that if I was a woman and I wanted a pair of shoes, <laughs> I could also get a man as well. Is that right? Oh, yes. You heard about that. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Sure. You get a shoe, you get a man. Okay. So how does it work? Team up with us. And there was this advertising company that came up with an idea that, oh, why don't we make the shoe as the matchmaker? Do you have a particular type of man that goes with a particular type of shoe? No, 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 no. All our shoes, all 20... Uh, of our tissues, they're like different, different personalities. Like this is Miss Business, or this one is uh, the simple girl next door. Then there's the fashionista. So the guy chooses the shoes based on their personalities or what they like about the woman. Right. So this woman that comes in and oh, if she likes the shoes, so they'll match with shoes, you know. Sure. And have you had anybody that's brought the shoes back because it's given them the wrong kind of man? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Not yet. All are, all, they're all fine with all the shoes. That, okay. Yeah. And how's the success rate matching the man to the shoes going? Mm, the success rate. Well, uh, let me see. Some... Some are like, because they haven't gone out on dates yet, so we're not really sure about that. Because I think they're going on dates only starting end of this month. Oh, okay. Can I check yeah. in with you later on in the month to find out how it's going? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. No problem. I don't know how we'll go, though, with getting some Triple M listeners laid, because I don't know if she, she mentioned shoes, but I don't know if they also look at thongs. <laughs> You're listening to The Rubber Room Podcast. You can listen to us weeknights, 7 to 10 p.m. on Triple M. So anyway, I was watching TV the other night, and I was watching ESP, and I was kind of flicking across the dock. And uh, ESPN, the sports channel, if you're not across it. And they had this thing called Mathletics. And I thought, well, this would be interesting. What's going on here? And the big announcer comes on. It was like a sporting event, like darts or something. And he comes on and he goes, and now, David from East Lakes Elementary. He's nine years of age and straight A's. And I thought, oh, it must be some kind of maths competition. All right, I'll watch this and, you know, feel good about myself. Feel smarter than the average nine-year-old. That's one way to make yourself feel good. Uh, and I was completely wrong. So, follow this if you can. Here are some of the questions to nine-year-olds. If A star B is defined as A times B plus three, what is the absolute difference between the quantity 10 star 11? Edward. Six. Six is the correct answer. What the? Was that even a language? So I keep going with it. Todd tells Juanita that he is thinking of a three-digit positive integer. The integer has 12 positive factors. The sum of two of its factors is 23, and the difference of those two factors is 1. 132. 132 is the correct answer. Jesus Christ, I mean, he lost me at Todd said something to Juanita. See if you can even attempt to answer this next question. Just try. The least positive integer that is divisible by 2, 3, 4, and 5, and is also a perfect square, perfect cube, fourth power, and fifth power, can be written in the form A to the B for positive integers A and B. What is the least possible value of A plus B? Four. Alex. 90. 90 <laughs> is the correct answer. Oh, man, one well, of these kids have got an IQ of about 6,000, you know? And I thought I was dumb because I didn't understand Snapchat. Incredible. Math. I don't even think that was actual words they were speaking there. So anyway, I had to flick around. Eventually, I found Family Feud, and I felt at home. At least I got some answers right from that. I heard Merrick talking about this. And I found this in the paper as well, and I thought, oh, I must do that. So it's incredible how great minds think alike, or more perhaps a case of typical people on the radio being attracted to a story about the man who was left red-faced when firefighters had to come and remove a tool from his penis. Apparently the man 
had his penis stuck in a ring spanner and it swelled up and he was unable to remove it. And the Tweed firefighter said it wasn't uncommon for them to be called to such jobs when people usually leave it too late to get it done. I don't want to know about what too late is ever in my life. He said sometimes they ask their wives to put butter on it. <laughs> this reminds me, Mrs. Ugly must remind me to get her to put some butter on my spanner. But anyway, the firefighter says we use a tiny angle grinder that's air-operated and measuring tape to protect the skin. See, if that was me, I'd want the measuring tape to be at least a couple of inches either way with a bit of extra. Uh, but anyway, they slowly zip away at it and then they keep the water running on it so it doesn't get too hot. You know where this is going, don't you? You just know where this is going. Alright, I've got a couple. I don't want to steal the obvious ones because I know that you're going to want them. But what is the punchline for the man who got his penis stuck in the spanner? Uh, was he trying to tighten the nuts? I'm sorry, I stole the obvious one. Was he looking for a screwdriver? Hey, what have you got? One triple three five three. I bet it's good. What have you got for the punchline? Man gets his penis stuck in a spanner. What's the punchline? Look at all the phones. I just knew you'd like this one. What's the and Dave, I should have expected you'd be first on the phone. <laughs> I'm not going to miss out on this one, mate. This is right up your alley in more ways than one. <laughs> the fireman goes, oh no, not another knob job. <laughs> sure, that's not the only knob joke we're going to hear tonight. <laughs> Rana, how are you? I'm good, how are you? What's the punchline? Ring dick or cocker spaniel? Call the RSPCA quickly. <laughs> That's right. How are you, Scotty? Hey, Phil, how are you, mate? I can't wait to hear it. What do you got? Well, a bit of chilli on the spanner. Are we watching MasterChef? Hello, Peter, how are you? He put the ring on the wrong finger. Hey, Mike. Was it a ring grip or a monkey wrench? Let's not split hairs. That's true. Hello, David. Mate, he's obviously right-handed because any trade he knows, it's righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. I don't even know what that means, but it sounded dirty. Uh-uh. Dave, what do you got? I reckon he should have asked for an open-ender. <laughs> what is it, Andrew? Oh, mate, I was just wondering if he was trying to loosen the load. All right, Ian, what have you got? His wife said, I don't remember leaving that in there. <laughs> and one more, why not? Go on, Chris. Don't be vain, it all comes ahead eventually. Now we can all get some sleep. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> What's the punchline? Yeah. Yep. Thank you. By the way, I just got a text from Sammy X in the UK with a punchline to our man gets his penis stuck in the spanner story. What a tool. So there you go. You think like all the way over in the UK on a holiday... She would probably not want to listen to the rubber room, but I was wrong. And she's back tomorrow night, Annabelle. I know, it's so sad. Wait till she finds out how you've been rearranging the highlighters on her desk. Oh, no, don't tell her. No, don't I tell wouldn't her. want to be you right now. Hey, Gazzo, New Stone Roses. Oh, my God, so exciting. Really, really happy to hear from the Stone Roses again. Uh, of course, they reunited back in 2011. Look, they played a few shows in that year. The one I saw at the Horton Pavilion was absolutely shambolic, and I say that as Yeah, you told me fan. that. Why? The sound was just shit. I thought they played sloppily. I really did. So I wasn't too impressed, but uh, I am impressed with this single All For One. Well, let's have a listen to it then. <laughs> If we all join hands, we'll 
pretty good, wasn't it? Although, having mm. said that, let me say this. I don't want to sell, sell my, my soul. He's, He's already, already in You're way me. off key. Forget it. You've just killed it. <laughs> I read this that apparently women have filthier minds than men, and that doesn't surprise me, actually, when you think about it, which is why we thought we would do our dirty minds competition and find out who of the genders have the dirtiest minds. Richard and Emma on the phone. Are we ready to go? Oh, good, thanks. Richard, when you know the answer, your name will be your buzzer sound effect, which for you, Richard, will be Richard. Yep. And for you, Emma, will be... Emma. Emma. Very good. Okay. (laughs) Question number one. What does a cow have four of that I only have two of? Richard. Yeah, Richard. Legs. Legs. That's one point to you, Dick. Get in there, son. What starts with a C and ends with a T, oval-shaped... And contains a thin whitish liquid. Richard? Yeah. Uh, no, it's <laughs> coconut. Oh, right. What goes in hard and pink and then comes out soft and sticky? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure you've had some of this in your mouth, Emma. Oh, possibly. Bubble gum. Richard oh. still won, Emma Neil. What does a man do standing up, a woman does sitting down, and a dog does on three legs? Emma. Yes, Emma? We. No, in fact, it's shake hands, but you had a go, so I'm going to give you one Aww. there. I one, one, okay. <laughs> what am I? A finger goes in me, and the best man always has me first. What am I? Richard. Yeah, go on. The ring? It is the wedding ring. I, I presume that's what you meant. Where's yes. your head at, Emmy? I just finished work. I I'm just sure you have. Whereabouts do you work? At Sexpo? Okay, here no. comes your next one. I come in many sizes. When I'm not well, I drip, but when you blow me, I feel good. What am I? No. Yeah, Emma. that's right, Emma. It is a nose. Are you a nurse by any chance? No, I'm a chef. Okay, well, then you'll have no luck with this next one. I have a <laughs> stiff shaft and my tip penetrate. It's with a quiver. What am I? <laughs> oh, Emma. Yeah. A bow and arrow? It's an arrow. I don't know if you can shoot the bow, but that's now three to Emma and two to Richard. What word starts with an F and ends in a K and it means a lot of heat and excitement? Emma. Yeah, Emma. Fire truck. That is a fire truck. Four to you, Richard. The hose isn't pointing your direction, I'm afraid. Uh, and I've only got one more, so I don't think you can win, but I want to give it to you anyway. What part of the man has no bone, but it's got muscles and a lot of veins and likes pumping? Richard. Emma. Yeah, go on, Richard. Penis? No, it's not the penis, is it? It's the heart. <laughs> We've got Christian Wilde here, who uh, is in Australia for Sexpo, and is also an adult movie star, but has a very interesting twist to the story as well. How are you? Excellent, sir. Thank you. So you started doing this when you were 19. Yeah, yeah. Started what, very young. What made you decide to get into the business? It was actually, like, strictly by chance, man. Like, I was um, scrolling through some ads on Craigslist back in the day when they had the adult section, you know, and, and it was more just for a laugh. Still living at my mom's house, uh, no job, and I was just going through there having a laugh. And then all of a sudden I saw this ad and it said, wanted 18, 22 year old male for solo videos. Pays, I think, 300 bucks. Right. And at that time for me, I was like, man, 300 bucks would be killer right now. Right now for me too, just caught it. Serious. Pay for a new pair of glasses. (laughs) (laughs) I emailed the guy and he hit me back and he was like, hey, let's do this. And it was all very quick. Before I knew it, I walked away and I think I had like 500 bucks in my pocket. You know, I was like, I can do this. Started taking the next step after the next step and seeing how far it went. Contacting different people, different studios. And down the rabbit hole we went. Or up the rabbit hole, perhaps. (laughs) And was safety paramount for you as well? 
in terms always. of... Yeah. Yeah, always. I, I don't know how to put it, but I had a deep sense that safety was important, you know, being safe sexually, taking care of myself health-wise, protecting myself against transmittable diseases, as well as not working with creepy, sketchy people, because you do find that sometimes in the industry. I've been really lucky, you know, I haven't had just but maybe a couple of, like, kind of weird scenarios or situations yeah, that yeah. have come up. But other than that, my, my entire career has been really, really fantastic, and it's been a ball. People's appetites are changing and mm-hmm. becoming a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. Do you have a threshold as to how far you won't go? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's vital for any adult performer. I've run into a lot of people who, through their experience, they've shared with me that they've crossed lines and boundaries for themselves that they wish they could have gone back and not done. You know, strictly from the point of view, it happens a lot more with women, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, women get pressured into doing a lot more things that they don't feel comfortable with. Money comes and goes. Money's very fluid. It's not worth my... Well, it's a job at the end of the day, right? Exactly. You're married, is that right? I am. So you're in a heterosexual relationship, but you do gay porn as well. Yes. It's it's more common than you would think. It's actually a very heated debate in gay pornography, in amongst the blogs and amongst the fans and stuff. It's a strong topic. It has to do with men who don't identify as homosexual being in films that are homosexual. And my personal view is I've experienced damn near every gender identity that there is. I've, you know, male, female. Female, trans male, trans female, pansexual, bisexual, you name it, under the sun. That's my sexuality. My sexuality is if you're fun, if your energy is good, and you want to get down, let's have a good time. So it's beyond the realms of bisexuality then? Yeah, yeah. But would you consider yourself to be bisexual? I, I think if I had to nail something like that down, I would say yes. I mean, I hate to put categories yeah, yeah, on it, but you know, people are going to try and do that. It's a big question that people have for me. But you know, to be honest, it really depends on the day. It really does. It changes a lot. I find that that to be a pretty common thing amongst a lot of different people. Hmm. You know, no matter what their gender identity. Some days they're into this. Some days they're into that. You know, it works the same. Wow. So Christian Wilde is here. He's an adult movie star, but um, and I guess and I got no problem with what you do, man. It's your own business. I guess a lot of people, though, would find it hard to sort of get their head around the fact that you do gay porn, but you're not actually gay. I don't have the same issue with that that a lot of people have. A lot of gay men attack me, you know, and they go, you're not gay, you shouldn't be in gay porn, and da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, while I respect that people are entitled to their opinions and stuff, I just don't feel like that. I am not a part of that community, but I I do understand that it's probably something that a lot of people are very passionate about and they're very protective about. I guess I can feel the same if I've got a band that I really like and somebody else decides they like that band. I go, hang on, that's my band. I saw them first. Maybe I've oversimplified that. No, 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 that that makes sense. That totally worked. Okay, now look, I tried to get online to see some of the films that you're in, but um, I hit a firewall, so let me run these by you. Were you in foot worship? I did. Okay. Good, so you're definitely, yes. this is your IMDB thing. Yep. Uh, men Hard at Work 8, so they made a few of those. Oh, yeah. How many are they going with that? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> okay. I just show up and sign the paperwork and get yeah. naked. Unloaded? I mean, they're all self-explanatory, really, aren't they? Yep, you know, yep, yep. Straight to the point four? Yep, yep. What is the most unusual? I know they like to do a whole lot of films that are based on, you know, real movie titles and giving them a humorous twist. Uh, Forrest Hump and things like that. You know? right, have you done a right. few of those? You've looked at the title and gone, oh, come on, man. No, that's... <laughs> uh, there have been some very, very just tacky titles. There's only a few studios that really try and do those parodies. They're down in L.A. and I haven't gotten a chance to do it. It would be fun. I would love to do, like, an Avatar thing, get- all yeah. painted blue, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that'd be great. Avatarnish. I mean, it's got to have a stupid name, right? It's got to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's got to. Thank you so much for coming in, man. Absolutely. We may find this a bit disturbing. He held me. Go! Oh! The Rubber Room.